I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. This is episode 51. I'm here with Jennifer Frey, who I saw on EWTN recently. She was interviewed by Father Mitch Pacwa, and somebody uh, wrote to me, one of the Pontifex University students wrote to me and said, you should have this person on your podcast. So here she is. I, I contacted her. It's great to see you, Jennifer. Welcome to the Way of Beauty podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> okay, so other than you were on EWTN, and I saw what you, you, you spoke there about uh, virtue and happiness, and you have a background in philosophy, and also uh, you talk about literature uh, very knowledgeably and with great insight, um, and the fact that you live in South Carolina, I know very little about you. So <laughs> could you begin, please, by just telling us a little bit of your, your story, especially your story in faith. Uh, the other thing I do know is you're a convert. Um, and as a convert myself, I'm always interested to know what draws people into the church. And then having come, how that stimulates the interest they have once they get there. Yeah, converts are a, are a special group of people. Um, so... Currently, I'm a philosophy professor here at the University of South Carolina. So I live in Columbia, South Carolina. We're in the middle of the state. I have six kids. I'm also married to a philosopher. Um, how did I get here? Well, I was not raised Catholic. In fact, I was not raised a Christian at all. I was raised in a religiously indifferent household. And um, when I went to university, I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Um, I decided that I really wanted to study philosophy in a serious way. So I was kind of a weird undergraduate in an American context because most American, um, most Americans go to college like mostly to make friends or to party or whatever. Um, but I really quite a few British people as well <laughs> yeah um right and for me uh, for whatever reason i just you know i did a lot of partying in high school and i it was just to me at that point it was boring and i was very invested in my education and at any rate i, I fell in love with philosophy which happens to people and i started you know for the first time in my life I realized that I was stupid and I didn't know anything, which is the first thing that any philosopher must realize <laughs> that you, you actually don't know anything, like anything you thought you understood, uh, you don't. Um, and so I went through this, you know, period of sort of terrifying confusion. And for the first time was asking myself the really hard, basic foundational questions about what I was. Uh, what sort of thing I was and and why I was here and whether there was a point to it all. And at any rate, I happened to fall in love with medieval philosophy in particular. I was very taken with Boethius. Um, so in my medieval philosophy class, we had read Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, right. which is really, uh, which is a wonderful book. Um, sorely neglected, but it's a wonderful text. And really, it's a text about happiness. It's a text about, you know, yes. the human person, what the human person is, and what um, what could perfect 
that kind of thing or what could fulfill or satisfy in the deepest way the kind of thing that a human person is and i was really struck by this and um then eventually i started studying um you know plato and aristotle but also aquinas and I eventually got my hands on this book by a Swiss Dominican theologian called Servius Pinkers. And the book was titled The Sources of Christian Ethics. And the basic thesis of the book is that the moral life, the point of the moral life is to be happy. And so the primary concepts of the moral life are happiness, right, as the goal mm -hmm. um, that you're striving to reach or attain, but also the virtues, because the virtues are supposed to be those qualities or characters of the soul that will make you such as to be able to attain this end. And this was like incredibly mind blowing to me, <laughs> um, you know, as an 18 year old young person, I didn't have sophisticated thoughts about morality. I had opinions. Um, I probably couldn't really successfully defend any of my opinions if my life depended on it, but I had very strong opinions. And the framework for thinking about the moral life not only made sense to me, it seemed very coherent and intelligible, um, but it was also deeply attractive to me because I had always thought of morality as just a set of rules, um, that governed us, um, and maybe like a set of duties, um, but it didn't have anything to do with happiness or satisfaction. And maybe in fact, um, doing the right thing would make you unhappy, but you would be a good person. So the idea that being a good person and being a happy person, um, were not only compatible, but had to be understood as essentially related, this had literally never occurred to me. Um, and it definitely never occurred to me that like, that's what the Christians thought. I, um, because, yeah. I'm going I'm to come in here and say, you have, it's amazing that you got these insights because this actually, in a different way, is what drew me into the church. Oh, okay, yeah. Was the belief that I would be happy? I get people asking me all the time, why Why did you, or I, actually, when I, I often talk to children, I say, why do you think I became Catholic? And a lot of them will say, because it's true. No one says, because you thought it'd be, you'd be happier. And, right. they, and, that, and that's the point I want to make. And when I got into the church, I discovered, and I don't think many Catholics believe that, either even though they have the, the the essence of it there they have greater access to it than anyone else right no i mean that was really so there were a lot of things that sort of scandalized and shocked me once i actually met catholics so yeah. i didn't grow up around catholics <laughs> um really and not. i had like really i mean so it was it was all like incredibly foreign to me but then i fell in love you know with these yeah. sort of like great doctors of the church I didn't mention Augustine, but Augustine also okay. um, was yeah. someone that I, I, you know, the confessions really fundamentally changed my life. And of course, that's also a book about happiness. But yeah. it's definitely true that if you, if, if, like, if you just sort of randomly picked a Catholic, you know, off the streets and you were like, so why do you have to follow the Ten Commandments? The idea that they're going to say because it would make me be happy is like, 
pretty far-fetched, right? <laughs> um, I mean, who knows what they would say? Probably they would say because God commanded it or something, um, which is, I mean, there's a sense in which it's true, but there's also a sense in which it's, it's a tautology. It doesn't explain anything. It doesn't reveal anything. Um, and so I was, I was, you know, shocked, impressed, attracted to this view. Um, and so, you know, I just, I was just like sort of reading everything that I could. And I was grappling with these questions about, you know, God and the soul. And yeah. to make a very long story short, I eventually um, decided to um, become a Roman Catholic. So I was baptized and received into the church um, just before I turned 20 years old. But it was definitely through philosophy. I mean, I'm sort of like one of the weirdos that just read my way into <laughs> the Catholic faith. And the, and the priest, the poor priest, like in Southern Indiana that I went to, he just, and I'm just throwing like all of this, like patristic theology at him and like all these questions. And he's just like, I've, he's just like, um, I don't know, but have you ever been to mass? And I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> he's like, maybe you should go. Yeah. Well, I, I must admit, when we started this conversation, I thought we were going to go into literature, but I am so fascinated by what you just told me. <laughs> it's got to come back at you. We'll do that first, I think. Okay, that's because, fine. Uh, it, that is wonderful. Uh, first of all, I read Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy before I came into the church, mm -hmm. and I just thought it was a, a, an amazing thing. He was this man in a, in a very, very difficult situation arguing telling me that I should be happy. I was miserable. <laughs> mm -hmm. And this guy was telling me that how to be happy effectively. He was, he was giving me some insights. And um, I'm just going to throw something to you about uh, there's, there's two things that I want to really explore. One is the, the nature of happiness itself and what, what it is. Is it, is it a difficult thing to to know what it is when we have it. I, I don't think it is, but I want to explore that. Um, and then the other is the, the role of this in evangelization. And, and I think that this, it, exactly as you said, this is something that's often struck me, that morality is a roadmap to happiness. And this is what we should be selling in the, in the church. It's what drew me in. Mm -hmm. And so I'm gonna throw something at you here that, very often in discussions about, for example, gay marriage. Uh, I live in uh, the East Bay, San Francisco area. So all the time I'm coming across people who are living lifestyles that are definitely not according to the teaching of the church. And uh, if any of them ever ask me about it, what, what I try to say to them is, look, you're free to do what you want. I don't want to interfere with your, your freedom. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I believe, if you ask me, is that if you follow the teachings of the church, whatever happiness and joy, and joy you have through what your current lifestyle, which I'm not going to argue against, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're deriving satisfaction from it, everything that you say, I'll take at face value, but what is on offer to you is something even greater, even better. And if you if you if you're prepared to follow the the morality of the church and maybe sacrifice one or two of the things that you're doing 
actually what would be opened up to you is something that's even greater. Um, now, is that a, a, a reasonable argument, would you say? Uh, wouldn't well, I mean, I think it depends because I think it's, you know, when stated at that level of generality, yeah. um, you know, it, I mean, it's true, but it's not really getting at what the alternative actually is. And I, and I think, you know, um, I mean, you could have the same conversation and in fact, it would be far more interesting with almost any just Catholic couple. I mean, yes. so, because I think, what are the numbers? Like 90% of Roman Catholics contracept. Yes. Um, so actually that's the exact same sin <laughs> yes. that we're talking about. Yes. Um, so, right. I mean, and what's, what is the, what is the problem? Um, well, now we're talking about chastity, like that's a virtue. Yes. Um, and so what's really, really, really difficult for everyone, not just gay people, there's like no need to single them out because it's everyone. What everyone has a hard time with is the idea that the sexual act is the reproductive act. <laughs> um, and that when you have sex solely for the sake of pleasure, um, when you render the act through whatever means, there are many ways you could make um, sex completely intentionally infertile. Um, some of those ways involve technology and some don't, but yes. like, however you do that, then you're destroying the one of the essential or fundamental goods that that act is meant to bring into your life. Um, and then you make it about bodily pleasure for the people involved in the act. And um, that's something that last time I checked, like everyone struggles to see. Um, and I mean, just speaking as someone who's written about chastity, I think that um, the place to start is to get people to think about um, what, like, what our, what our sexuality is for, like, what is its role in human life? Is it about pleasure and pleasing ourselves? Um, or like all, like, like, like all, um, all of virtue, like virtue functions so as to take us outside of ourselves and connect us to goods that transcend the self. Like that's how I understand virtue. And, um, when we cut off human sexuality from the family and reproduction, then we are cutting off its self-transcendent character. Um, it's no longer about a common good, but just about private pleasure. Um, and there's not a single virtue that's just about private pleasures. Yes. Um, and so we lose the self-transcendent character of virtue. I think that's a difficult conversation to have. Um, but I think that's how you, you yeah. have to talk, you have to talk about the specific virtue. Um, why, why we need to be disciplined with respect to our sexual appetites and disciplined so as 
to make them ordered to something that transcends the self. Right. And of course, that's, as you say, that's a difficult conversation unless they're willing to listen and explore that with you. They need to be open. Um, that's right. And my experience is that nobody is. <laughs> I mean, very few, very few people, including very few Catholics, are sort of happy to have a conversation about the church's teaching on sex. Uh, I'm going to say that some are, and that how can we open people up? Well, the, the answer is if they see in us as people uh, something that they think they haven't got, they may be curious. It happens occasionally, I think. Yeah, that's true. So I think, um, you know, I have a large family and um, it's like, on the one hand, people think that's like weird and crazy, but then on the other hand, they also think it's beautiful. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I think you do, you do bear a sort of burden of, um, I mean, maybe burden is an unhappy word choice, but yeah, there, I think that if you are trying to convince someone to live a certain way, then they better not look at your own life and be like, wow, <laughs> that looks really terrible. But, but also it's in the way that we relate personally. Um, I, I'm thinking that um, if I, I, I strive to do this, I don't need to concede any of the points that you've made to, 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 in order, but to, and stop being gracious and loving and considerate and patient and so on, all those things with the, with the people that I'm dealing with. And mm -hmm, right. I think if they see that in you, and this is a, this is a high standard to aim for, but th that what it comes down to is the first step is for me then to look at myself. And right. people don't see that in me just in the way that I am. That, that is the greatest thing that, that I can do. And they may never ask me. They, we may never get to that conversation, but potentially it might strike somebody and they will start to be curious and perhaps start reading privately. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, mm -hmm. what, what is it that Jennifer had? What is it that David has? Mm -hmm. They're able to do this. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, I, by the way, thank you. That was a, a beautiful description of virtue, which I hadn't heard before. And I'm going to replay this and try and memorize it, should anyone <laughs> ever ask me the question. <laughs> Unfortunately, sure. <laughs> it won't happen very often, as you say, but, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, unless it's a podcast, doesn't it? Um, but let's talk about what happiness is. Um, yeah. I think it's simple. I think we all, even if we can't say what it is, we all know what it is when we, when we have it. Mm -hmm. But it's not all, it doesn't always seem to be presented in that way. So what, what, well, what yeah, <laughs> look, I'm a philosopher, so I don't think anything is simple. Um, <laughs> so, you know, be careful. Um, I think that happiness is a slippery concept. And I think that happiness, just as a word in the English language, um, you know, has a lot of baggage that, yeah. so, I mean, it actually comes from hap, right? Which is sort of like luck. So it's sort of written into the etymology that this is, a, you know, something that you might have just by good fortune or something. And that's um, reflected in how we use the word sometimes. And so 
I think we have to disambiguate or distinguish between light or shallow uses of happiness. Yes. I think are legitimate uses. I don't want to say, oh, you've just misapplied a concept or something. Yeah. Uh, but there's a big difference between shallow happiness and, or what frankly I might call false happiness and what I would call deep happiness or true happiness or something like this. So, and in my own thoughts about happiness, I'm drawing on Aquinas, um, the Aristotelian tradition more generally. Um, but the basic idea is that um, happiness is something like human fulfillment, perfect human fulfillment, such that if you were in um, such a condition, um, then there would be um, no, no remainder, nothing left. You would be fully satisfied, right? Um, so it's sort of like um, if you're really thirsty and you have, you know, a big tall glass of cold water, then you drink until you're satisfied. But you're going to be thirsty again, right? <laughs> it's only going to last for so long. Uh, humans need to keep replenishing their thirst. But the idea of, of happiness is something that would satisfy you and you're not going to um, become depleted again or something. Um, you're just going to be perfectly satisfied. And Aquinas calls that perfect happiness. And he thinks of that in terms of beatitude and he thinks that only God can give you that um, because our perfect happiness is communion with God. Um, but Aquinas also thinks that there's imperfect happiness and that's what we're talking about in this life. And imperfect happiness is pretty awesome. <laughs> so yeah. it's not as great as perfect happiness, um, but it's pretty great, right? So, um, and when we're talking about um, imperfect happiness, we're talking about what humans can attain for themselves uh, through the exercise of their own human abilities. So this is where Aquinas distinguishes between natural virtue and theological virtue. So for Aquinas, the cardinal virtues are natural virtues. So this is justice, prudence, fortitude, and temperance. And then all of the virtues, all of the subordinate virtues that fall underneath those categories. Yep. And then there's theological virtue. Um, natural virtue orients you to a common good, namely a, a, the happy life of the community. So happiness for Aquinas at any level is never something that solely attaches to an individual. It's always a common good, where that means that it's common to all human beings, right? It's the good common to you all in virtue of your nature. Um, it's common in the sense that it's not competitive. So if I am trying to be happy in the right sort of way, then it doesn't in any way detract from your possibility of being happy. So it's not like the milk in the store, right? The milk in the store is, is gonna run out. Maybe, maybe I'll buy, <laughs> maybe my purchasing the milk in the store competes with your ability to get it. Happiness isn't like that. Okay, so it's not a competitive good. It's not a zero sum game. And then finally, if it's a common good, it's participatory. And that means that um, you participate in and you enjoy the good in common with others. 
And that's why for Aquinas, even at the level of natural virtue, um, the basic conception of the moral life is a life of friendship. It's a life of communion with other persons. Um, and friendship is the context. Friendships where that's understood capaciously to include every loving relationship. Um, you know, you need virtue because the friend wills the good of the other, right? And, and friends share, they share lives and they share activities, right? So they participate in these goods. That's all at the level of natural virtue, but then we have to talk about theological virtue, which orders a human person to God as their final perfect end. And that of course would be faith, hope, and love. And so there's a difference in the object um, but there's also a difference in how the virtue, how you get the virtue. So for natural virtue, um, you get it by doing the virtuous things such that you become habituated in a sense to doing those things. And ideally you get to the point where you enjoy doing those things. So if I'm a just man, then I repay my debts. Um, but I don't repay my debts and sort of like wish that I hadn't or feel bad about it, um, I gladly repay my debts. Um, now with theological virtue, um, those are divinely given to me through the sacraments and through the workings of grace. So there's a different sort of causal etiology at work there. Um, and so you can't have them, like no matter how hard you work or no matter how much natural virtue you have, um, if you're not receiving and cooperating with God's grace, you are not going to have faith, hope, and love. And it's interesting. Yes. Um, I just want to come in there and just make that. So it's faith, hope, charity, or faith, hope, love. Are those yeah, caritas, love in the sense yeah, of caritas, yeah. yes. Okay. where caritas is love of God and love of neighbor through God. And then the, the natural virtues are uh, temperance, justice. Fortitude and, and practical wisdom. What was the final one? Prudence, prudentia or practical oh, yes. wisdom. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's funny, I list them every day and then when I'm on the spot, I can't remember. Um, yeah, you know. <laughs> so, and so there's a nice number of seven. Everything comes nicely in sevens in the church. So I, I also seven deadly sins. By design, or is it just part of the pattern of the, the musical harmony, as uh, we just <laughs> described? Um, yeah. Which I love, by the way. I, and uh, he, everything conforms to this sort of pattern of harmony and beauty. And right. Beauty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the other thing to say about happiness um, is just to make a couple more distinctions because I'm a philosopher, um, Aquinas recognizes a distinction between like a formal sense of happiness and a material sense of happiness. So formally, happiness is just defined as that end or goal um, for the sake of which you act, so you, you desire um, and you act um, that perfects you or fulfills you. Yeah. Um, but then the question is, okay, but what is that goal, right? And that would be your material conception of happiness. What vision 
of happiness are you actually operating under in your practical deliberation and your choices? Do you think that the good life is the life of pleasure? Do you think it's the life of wealth and power? Do you think it's the life of honor or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so Aquinas says, well, formally speaking, everyone's the same. Everyone wants to be happy. Yeah. And everyone operates under some vision of happiness that guides their deliberation. But materially speaking, there's like a lot of disagreement, right? <laughs> um, um, and some people have incredibly false visions of what it is to be happy and they make disastrous choices and their lives don't go well. Um, so there's that distinction too. Um, and it's sort of important to keep that in mind when we're talking about happiness that we have formal material, we have imperfect, perfect. Um, and then we also have shallow versus deep happiness. Yes. And the the misconception, I'm, if I'm understanding what you say, comes in that, I mean, I think that even these lesser forms of happiness are authentically happiness. But the problem is if we think we mistake them for the the, the one, the, the perfect, if you like, the one we're striving for. Um, and, yeah, so I think that, that a lot... Astray. Yeah, so I think a lot of people get stuck at sort of a lower level, yeah. right? So they get stuck in base pleasures. Um, but I think we have to be careful because um, some people who get stuck at that lower level are truly unhappy people. Right, so people who become addicted to pornography or become alcoholics or something like yeah. this. Um, yeah, they're still like when they're, when they're high or when they are engaged in watching pornography, like, yeah, they're experiencing pleasure. Um, but even they aren't confused anymore that it's making them happy, right? I mean, they sort of like, like, most addicts are self-aware that yes. this is like really bad. <laughs> um, but the trouble is they can't, they, they, they sort of lack, they fundamentally lack the self-control necessary to progress in the moral life. Um, I, so, I, I mean, but on the other hand, you, you sort of have these characters who are like, you know, the happy glutton. So just earlier today, I was leading under, I, I um, am reading Dante's Divine Comedy with undergrads this year. So we're still early in the Inferno. And today we were reading Canto Six, which is the gluttons, right? So Dante is down in like the fourth ring of hell and he meets this, this glutton, um, I guess Chaco is his name. And, um, you know, Chaco was saying to him, like when I was, when I was alive, you know, um, I really enjoyed food and it was so great. Um, but now, right, he's sort of stuck down in the mud um, and he can't get up and he lives, he lives literally like a beast in hell. Um, this is his just punishment for living the life that he did. But you do get the sense that like when he was on earth, you know, he was enjoying it. Um, so I don't want to deny that. And I don't want to deny that someone like that can think that they're living well. Um, most vicious people think that they're living well, um, but they're not. Whatever sort of happiness that they have, um, it's shallow. 
And it is false in the sense that it is radically incomplete in terms of the sorts of goods available to a human being, but it also almost always contravenes or makes impossible the attainment of higher goods. Yes. So that's, I, I can see that. So if, if our desire for the perfect happiness, which is, should be the homing signal, if you like, is transferred to one of these lesser forms, um, then, uh, th then that causes problems. And I'm just thinking of my own experiences. What, what part of what led me, I, I'm talking about this actually at the moment with a series of talks at the Institute of Catholic Culture, part of what led me to the church was, um, uh, well, I was extremely unhappy and I met someone who offered me a, a way out and I won't go, if you want the story, you can go to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Um, mm -hmm. But what you describe uh, about this struggle between seeking distraction, which is what I was doing in my 20s, mm -hmm. uh, through superficial pleasure, mm -hmm. and really at, at various times almost, what would happen is if I just paused to think of, for a moment about my um, real situation, I would just be overwhelmed with a sense of hopelessness and despair. I knew I wasn't happy right. uh, deep down. And I was right. conscious, the way you described that, you know, I was conscious of that. Now I might've denied it if you'd asked me, I, my pride had to be battered before I was prepared to admit that. Right. Um, and at various times, I could be so taken with the distraction of the superficial pleasures that I was chasing that I might convince myself that it was okay, but it didn't take much for me to realize eventually, shall we say, um, that, or it became pretty clear that I couldn't live my life on this basis, which is what the, the hedonist tries. So basically, I was a pretty poor hedonist. I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> I, <would say. laughs> I couldn't, you know, I just, I just look at the way some people pursued it. I just you were an untalented hedonist. Yeah, untalented, yeah. <laughs> I was unprincipled hedonist, but um, and that was my my great blessing, I would say. But it became clear to me that this wasn't the answer, and uh, to to be even twenty four hours a day or all of my waking hours to be distracted uh, would not satisfy. I I I, it, I realized that. Um, and I would try it, you know, the, when I started off on that life, and it began in college, by the way. The, the, mm -hmm. the, so I'd have loved the, the university you went to for all the wrong reasons, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, within, by the time I was 26, so I went to college at 18, I pursued all the wrong things. Um, it was really clear to me that uh, I did not know how to fulfill that inner desire. And by a chance meeting... I was shown a way that eventually, it began then at 26, was at the age of 31, I was received into the church. But it really was this question of happiness and this recognition in me. I, I had never heard any of the, the beautiful things you've just told us, but mm. I, I think you don't need to, it's just like beauty, you don't need to know what it is to recognize it when you see it. And with happiness, um, untutored as I was philosophically, mm. I, I could recognize at some level exactly what you're saying. And I knew right. I needed to look somewhere else. 
Right. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what you were asking, which I never got to, which is, you know, how does happiness um, interact with evangelization? Yes. And I think that, so what's interesting to me about your story um, is that even Aristotle would have recognized your constant need for distraction as like a coping mechanism or a strategy to deal with the fact that you were not in a good position, yeah. right? So we, so because what, what does the distracted soul not want? They don't want to enter into a place of solitude and silence because that's the place of self-reflection. Yes. And that's a very scary place yes. if you're a vicious person. Um, and Aristotle says in one of his books on friendship um, that vicious people um, never want to be alone because they're not friends with themselves, right? Because actually they hate themselves. <laughs> um, but they sort of like constantly distract themselves yeah. so that they don't have to think about it. Yeah. And I think there's a deep truth there um, about human beings that even Aristotle saw. And I think that when we, I mean, to me, the role of philosophy generally, and this is from my own experience, but I also just think if you look at it historically and objectively, this is one of the ways that it functions. You know, philosophy is always a call to um, contemplation, to solitude, to this kind of probing self-reflection. And um, that's always good for someone. Um, now, it's not a guarantee of anything because you know, there, there are plenty of philosophers who um, ended up saying, you know, false things, even terrible things. Yes. Um, but the search for truth, the desire for truth, um, the search for truth, that is like most fundamentally the path to a relationship with, with God. Um, and so I think that when we call people to ask these hard questions, to think about things like, well, actually, what is happiness? Like, have you ever asked yourself what will actually make you happy? Now let's consider the things in your life that you're going for. Are these the kinds of things that could really fulfill a human being? Well, that invites the question, well, actually, what is a human being, right? How are we to understand the human being? Can we understand the human being just materially, um, et cetera, right? So once, once we get into this space, the space of philosophy, these are, all, <laughs> these are all just philosophical questions that any human can ask themselves, any mature, reflective human can ask themselves. Um, that I think is a, is a really important, um, entryway into getting people to take a look or to consider, um, the Christian intellectual tradition, the Christian vision of the human person. And it will either connect with them.